Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am talking with Hugo Troshan. Hugo is a political theorist and historian of political thought with uh, interest in democratic theory, liberalism, uh, and the politics of Friedrich Nietzsche. He is a professor at the University of Nottingham. He did his postdoc research uh, with conspiracy and democracy research in Cambridge, where he also got his PhD. His book, Nietzsche's Great Politics, uh, is where we mostly focus on the conversation. Uh, We start by talking about why, for a long time, people have not examined Nietzsche's political thought. Many people look at his philosophy of morals or um, his some of his other critiques about Christianity, but his politics seems to go um, underlooked, and it's been that way for quite some time. So we talk about that. We talk about what is uh, or what are Nietzsche's great politics, why Nietzsche emphasized culture and the emphasis of a hierarchical system. We talk about Nietzsche's political philosophy as an inversion of Plato's philosophy. We talk about how to build a culture. Then we talk about the philosophy of state and democracy, slavery and caste systems, Nietzsche's politics with all of his many other themes, such as the Ubermensch and uh, eternal recurrence of the same, etc. And we talk about Nietzsche's politics and how much of it could be um, extended to politics in our current times and some of the contours of doing that. Um, I really love this conversation because, uh, as many folks will know, Nietzsche is, is one of my favorite philosophers, and he's a he's someone that's a very necessary philosopher, but someone that's tough to really kind of wrestle with in a lot of ways uh, to kind of get at the accuracy of many of the things he's saying, and uh, he's he's quite profound. And um, we had a great conversation again on on his politics and why that's kind of central to how Nietzsche looked at things. And so reading Nietzsche's philosophy in, in, in that light is, uh, I think, uh, supremely important. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube. Uh, so go and uh, subscribe and follow and share widely. And now I bring you Hugo Drosian. I'm here with Hugo Droshen. Uh Hugo, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, to talking with you. Thank you very much uh, for having me on. I'm looking forward to the chat too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you have uh, written a really, really, really wonderful uh, book, uh, Nietzsche, which you don't see a lot of. Uh, people kind of talk about him, write some you know, essays, things like that. But it's, you know, people kind of have this interesting kind of mix with Nietzsche. He's, he's kind of well quoted and cited in some ways but uh, i really really enjoyed it the book's called nietzsche's great politics it's been out for for a couple of years now it's out in the in the uh paperback which came out in 2018 and the, the hardcovers out there uh so it's fabulous before we get into the book and nietzsche and his philosophy why don't you tell listeners uh a little bit about yourself just uh what your professional academic background is and any of uh the specifics that you're uh currently up to Great, well, and thanks for the kind words about the book. So, um, yeah, I'm currently, uh, actually, I can say this on the podcast, I've been promoted. So I'm now Associate Professor in Oh, very nice. At the University of, of Nottingham in the UK. Robin Hood, for the listeners out there, that's the association. 
Um, and the book you're talking about, I did my PhD at the University of Cambridge in the UK, and um, the, the book was on Nietzsche's politics. Sorry, the PhD was on Nietzsche's politics, and then that led to, with some revisions, etc., mm-hmm. led to the book that you just spoken about. So that's, um, yeah, that's it. And mm-hmm. um, what else is there to say? Half Irish, half French. I think that was uh, <laughs> people have those questions about where I'm from. But that's yeah, that's it. It's a, it's a, it's not a very exciting uh, career so far. What do you uh, mostly, uh, I guess, teach on? Do you teach on contemporary um, continental philosophy, or is there a specific uh, space, or or are you kind of all over the place? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm actually I'm in a politics department, so oh, we nice. we tend uh, so it's political theory. So we, we teach the classic kind of more history political thought, you know, Plato to NATO in the first year, mm. to the first year undergraduates. The second year course, uh, my teach is on democracy and its critics, where we look at the different theories of democracy, Tocqueville or mm. um, whoever it might be. Um, and then uh, third year courses, um, teach a course with a, with a colleague on populism, elites, mm. Mm. democracy. So there's actually democracy is a bit of a theme, which is, speaking about this before starting that i'm desperately trying to finish the second book which is going to be on democracy elites and democracy so that's been a bit more of my focus since since nietzsche so mm. hopefully hopefully that will i'm hoping anyway i'll finish it soon <laughs> so, that's, that's wonderful yeah. yeah yeah that's, that's, that's again it's a very very timely kind of discussion and uh be very interested to 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 read that so that'll be exciting okay so let's let's talk a little bit about nietzsche um I I feel like I said Nietzsche is something that's kind of known. He's kind of quoted a lot, um, but a lot of people, um, I think people might casually read him. I think one of the things that has been more, uh, maybe more understood recently. There's been a few works that have come out. Um, is about his politics and really seeing him as a, um, I don't know if you want to say a political philosopher, but definitely a philosopher or thinker that was really you know i think like anybody is but specifically for him and and his thought shaped by his time and shaped by kind of politics in general so i guess how do how do we read nietzsche's political thought um and why do you think for a while most people have ignored this and and just focused on his morals or just focused on um you know aspects of life again those are major themes he's got a lot of big themes but why do you think the political side or the political thought of nietzsche has gone kind of uh uh, untapped at least in 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 many ways in which people think of him yeah it goes back to world war ii and the kind of uh association that nietzsche had at that time with nazism or at least that the nazis tried at a certain moment um appropriate him as a as a as a basis for their own then kind of philosophy so that's that's where the controversy starts for so when i mean in the u.s setting there's really one um one great interpreter of of nietzsche walter kaufman yeah. who then teaches at princeton and he, he was he was actually spent some time in germany during the war and this is when he discovers nietzsche and he thinks it's very very interesting but he's obviously very conscious of the fact that well, I'm not going to be able to just talk about Nietzsche in this kind of way, but given the given the context um, that he was just operating after the war, and he has this kind of tainted association. So Kaufman said, "Okay, well, how can we save Nietzsche in many ways from the kind of from the bestiary he had fallen into?" And so Kaufman consciously said, "Look, actually, Nietzsche 
wasn't really interested in politics at all. That's not what his main focus on. His focus was really about philosophy. He was actually this 19th century humanist, really wasn't interested in, in politics. That was really a secondary concern. So we could just kind of put the, the politics aside and we could, follow, we could focus on his philosophy and his ideas of morality or whatever it might be. And in many ways, that was a way to kind of save him from that philosophical abyss he'd fallen into during World War II. So politics was quite taboo. On the one hand, because if you talked about politics, people say, oh yeah, Nietzsche was a Nazi. Or then the movie say, oh, well, Nietzsche wasn't really interested in politics at all. Mm-hmm. But that, that dominated for a very, very long time. And it's only recently that this has started changing somewhat. Um, I think the first change came about, we were talking briefly before on air about, or no, so you asked me a question about continental philosophy. Mm-hmm. In France, for instance, in Germany, it remains, Nietzsche politics still remains a bit taboo, given obviously mm-hmm. the, the context. Sure. But in France, interestingly, France never had that t- taboo because from the very um, beginning, some of the people there said, no, no, actually Nietzsche and Nazism, it's just a fraudulent kind of link. So we're just not going to take any of that at all. And that then allowed the time interpretations that we have with Foucault, with Derrida, with these types of people. Mm. And when that when that kind of French theory or whatever you want to call it, kind of migrated to, to the US, then that, then that allowed... Um, different people to talk about Nietzsche and politics again, but it was very much from that perspective. So, okay, um, you know, uh, well, some of the some of these ideas, it, it became the way it expressed itself in many ways is that you associated Nietzsche with agonistic politics, mm. um, and this had a strong kind of postmodern uh, philosophical basis for it because a lot of it was to do with how there's no such thing as a fixed identity. It's about challenging different identities. And this is one way you can talk about democracy. So it was really kind of, it was more of like using Nietzsche as a way of talking about politics rather than specifically looking at what what Nietzsche himself said um, about politics. And some some people started doing that. And what I tried to do basically in, in the book was to say, well, you know, there's these two ways. Either we say Nietzsche doesn't have politics or we kind of think about Nietzsche as this, uh, some of Nietzsche's philosophical ideas give us a basis for a postmodern, radical, agonistic form of democracy. And what I thought about doing in the book is like, well, actually, you know, Nietzsche wasn't writing in the 20th century or in the 21st, actually. He was, you know, he's writing at the end of the 19th century. And if we look at what the context of the 19th century, then maybe that gives us a better idea what when Nietzsche was talking about politics. What exactly did he mean? What was the context there? Because obviously it's not the Nazi context or it's not postmodernism which you know he influenced so that was the main i think shift um that i was that i hoped to do with the book yeah uh, it's it's interesting it's always interesting to me how so much of you know a certain point in 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 writing can have um an impact on how people view or read or shape you know kaufman was obviously huge um, in a lot of ways, and I think you know he has a lot of you know great contributions, but um, you know it's interesting how he kind of, uh, if you will, gerrymandered how how we view or how we talk about or think about you know Nietzsche's thought, and, and I think he had a lot of access to his stuff. He did the translation. I mean, he was he was huge, but and you know maybe not a lot of people were in the U.S. at least were you know writing or thinking about him at the time, but. It's interesting how those kind of things just kind of get stuck there, and then we don't uh, we don't update, if you will. Um, and so I think it's it's nice to see you know a few folks um, 
uh i'm thinking of the big book that came out it's the italian guy it's like a thousand pages i just finished reading I mean, losurdo losurdo yeah. yeah yeah and it just, it just got translated into english and you know it was great i mean it was it was a great book and it talks a lot about you know his his politics and so it's 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 interesting to see that there's a lot of themes to pull here um so we we, we there's too many we won't be able to get to all of them but i want to talk about the big ones um there there's this there's a, f- a few big things here so we can just kind of hit them as we go the the book is called you know nietzsche's great politics and you mentioned that there he this is obviously a, a reference to something uh, uh nietzsche has said as well uh could you talk about what great politics is for nietzsche maybe as opposed to patty politics as he likes to describe it uh and what what's the kind of connection there what he's trying to to get at or what he's what he's saying by great politics yeah, this goes back to that try to move to say, let's look at Nietzsche within his own context. And if you if you put Nietzsche back in his own context, it's 19th century Germany, more specifically, it's Bismarck. It's, um, and, you know, he's witness to the unification of Germany. These are these are big, momentous, um, yeah. historical and, and political events. And so if you go back and you think, OK, Bismarck, well, you know, what was Bismarck's main policy? So we know Bismarck's policy was like, OK, we have a few wars with different countries so we can unite Germany under Prussia and exclude actually Austria. That was that was uh, one of it. There's all these, um, so there's these famous phase, phrases associated with uh, Bismarck, blood and iron, right? You know, this is how you how you unify Germany through blood and iron, through wars and through technology. Mm-hmm. And so that's one, um, one term. But the other term that is associated with that, with Bismarck's politics is grosse politique, great big politics or great politics. Yeah? Because the idea was to say we've, uh, Bismarck wanted to make Germany a great power through blood and iron, through um, its wars, through its technological um, innovations and transformation. And it wanted to be a great power like Russia was at the time. This is the late 19th century. Russia, France, the UK, which had its colonies. There's all these questions of, of colonies. So at the time, the politics was really about power politics. Um, and it was about different uh, countries kind of vying off um, um, against one another. Also quite different to the kind of, well, obviously now we talk about, you know, post-war two, there was superpowers, right? There was really just um, the US and there was Russia. Today, maybe we're going to maybe a bit more of a multipolar world or not. We've seen the rise of China. But at the time, it was really these, you know, these European um, uh, countries who were kind of battling it out for world supremacy. So so that's why the, the book is called Great Politics, because the, the politics, the term that was dominating the politics of his day would have been Bismarck's Cosa Politique. And he had personal experience. He served as a medical orderly during the Franco-Prussian War. So he witnessed this firsthand in many ways. And but very quickly at first, at first he's he's kind of like, you know, when he's young, he's quite sympathetic to the idea of, of German unification. Partially this was um the influence of Wagner was having on him. Wagner who was quite militaristic, quite nationalist. So when he was hanging out with Wagner at the time, He's, he kind of falls in step with that, but actually, very quickly he becomes very, very, very critical of it. So Bismarck's policies, he thinks are actually, and this is why in the change you get from great politics and petty politics. Like, oh, Bismarck is pretending that he's doing this great politics of German unification, power politics, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, the really what he's really doing is, you know, this is philistinism. Uh, Bismarck thinks that because Germany has beaten France, that all of a sudden German culture is superior. But that's actually a joke. French culture remains much more superior. And the type of nationalism and all these types of things will be 
uh, put under subsumed under you know these these great divides that Nietzsche has between master morality and slave morality or herd morality, where he says actually the type of policies and type of politics that Bismarck is pursuing, he thinks it's great politics, but actually it's just a form of slave morality. It's fetishism, it's petty, it's nationalistic, it's xenophobic, all that. It's a form of slave morality actually, mm. and so this is why he changes these terms. It's a very Nietzschean thing to do, right? We know. Good and bad becomes good and evil. Here's the same. It's like, okay, we have grosse politique, great politics, but actually great politics is really petty politics. And then Nietzsche, at least that's what I try to argue in the book, and the book over the course of his, his life tries to think about, well, if Bismarck's policies and politics is based on slave morality, what would a truly great politics based on master morality actually amount to? And that's the, I think there's a vision I try to then explore um, in the book. Mm, yeah, no, that's very, very nicely said. Uh, I'll make a, a footnote here. Uh, you talked about blood and iron. Uh, I had the the wonderful uh, Katya Hoyer. She's a historian. Uh, she wrote a book called Blood and Iron, uh, coming off of the, that speech, and uh, and talks about um, uh, the the second Second Reich, I guess it is the the unified German Empire, eighteen seventy one. Uh, it, it's on the podcast. I can't remember which episode it is, but we had a lovely conversation. Um, and people can listen to that for kind of the historical reference that, that you're mentioning there. We kind of go through it and lay it out and what was happening. So that, that might actually be a nice compliment there. So <clears throat> where is the, this idea of when, when he was trying to think of Nietzsche, when he was trying to think of a, a modern society, there's a lot of emphasis on culture. Now, I want to understand the important context of this because many people today We'll look at culture today in 21st century, 2023, and say, ah, see, let, let me go to my Nietzsche and just see what he has to say about culture. That's not to say that there isn't a lot of uh, valid, maybe, application you can get from his philosophy for today's culture. But as you just stated, um, it is, is much, it's a much different time when he was, uh, you know, where he was living and, and when he was living, uh, kind of turn of the 20th century there. And so... You know what? What is it that we can understand about modern society for him, and why he placed this emphasis on on culture? I, you know, I have other follow ups to that, but I'll let you start with that. What, what was the emphasis there? Yeah, again, I, again, I think if you put it back in the context of the 19th century, there was these big debates, precisely because if Germany was unifying, then the question was, well, what is German culture? And what is German culture going to be on the basis of unification? And this is a big debate that everybody's kind of having in the 19th century. And the Germans in particular, what they they what they what look back to, they look back to ancient Greece, right? and they see Greece and they say, okay, the ancient Greece, that was a great culture. And there's, there's this link that we're going to try to make between ancient Greece and then modern German culture and the German culture of the 19th century. So there is this debate and Nietzsche's participating then in this debate also about 19th culture. And actually, this is when the start of the disagreement starts with, with Wagner, where Wagner thinks, oh, you know, the ancient Greeks, um, you know, they, they had uh, they were great and we want to recreate also this great um, culture in Germany. Um, but one of the, the the problems that the ancient Greeks had was slavery, you know, and right. it's like, oh, we need we need to get rid of slavery. And Nietzsche actually says, well, actually, no. Um, if you uh, the Greeks managed to have this great culture precisely because they had slavery, so the two were linked. So this is the the start of the debate that Nietzsche has with Wagner, and the start of the falling out actually is on is on this on the political on this political question. So yes, yeah, so there's a real question about what is what is German culture going to be. 
what is Scottish features is because at the time it's like oh well, French culture has you know it's got its paintings it's got a philosophy it's got all these different things what is German culture going to be and Nietzsche writes at the beginning he says well culture is the unity of style so that if a certain country has a culture that a certain style of that of that country you will be able to see it in its paintings and in its philosophy in its writings in its operas and you could say okay that's that's something that um that is specifically German. Um, he, yeah, whether he, I mean, he moved, he quickly moved away from the idea that we wanted a, a, a pure German culture. That's, that's something that Wagner wanted. He moved away from that very quickly and actually started thinking, no, what we need is some kind of European culture that would be more interesting than a purely German culture, which he gave up quite quickly. And he didn't think was really going to, was really going to come um, together precisely because of the stuff we just spoke about, which is, oh, well, Bismarck, great politics. Yeah, just because you you beat France in the battlefield doesn't mean you've beaten them culturally or not. And mm. he wasn't very optimistic about what would happen there. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's the con- hopefully that answers at least part of yeah. the question that you're asking. It's like that's the context and how you have to understand culture at the time. Yeah, there's this there's this idea of a high cultural society and a lower democratic society. So, how did how did you think that worked? pragmatically it sounds like there's a certain hierarchy here right of maybe elites maybe people that aren't elites but in the context of building if you will a culture or something a distinct culture how is he looking at this kind of hierarchy system yeah exactly that's and that's a disagreement he's having with with, with wagner wagner says oh no we need to have this kind of democratic nationalist um, culture which is why when he he builds the theater, there's there's no boxes, right? Because the idea of the boxes, like yeah. the, the boxes in the theater, the opera, that's for like VIPs. He's like, no, we get rid of that. We just have a unified kind of parterre where everybody sits there. Um, the irony, of course, is that then the parterre just becomes so expensive that nobody can actually go, and that's still <laughs> the case today. So that Wagner is trying to think about, yes, this nationalist kind of um, a culture for, for the whole of Germany. And Nietzsche's point is to say, well, actually... No, precisely. If you look at the Greeks already, you can see, uh, well, there has to be inequality to be able to create um, to create a form of high culture. Um, so, yeah, so you're right in saying Nietzsche does think there's a, separate, there's a difference between high culture and kind of lower, lower culture. And that is an, an obligatory um, divide to maintain if you want to attain high, high um, cultural achievement. What, what exactly he means by that is, it's hard. It's kind of hard to know, but like you know, the pantheon of of great, right, good. Uh, at least for for Nietzsche, it's like good. At these great people, if that's what we want to. Um, uh, if that's what we want to produce, then actually we do need to think seriously about how resources are distributed in society, and if we and that perhaps resources have to be distributed somewhat unequally, so that these people like Goethe can actually um, appear. Because that's the point about. The, the ancient Greek state is that well, it's only when you have a divide division of labor where some people work and some people don't work that you can have culture because you need the time to be able to create culture. If you're working all day in the field, you're not going to be able to to do philosophy or whatever it might be. So there is a question of distribution of resources, and he just says that's an essential part of of high culture. It's not if you get rid of it, you're not going you're not going to achieve it. I'll, I'll come to the to the modern. I guess applications of that, yeah. but because uh, uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, before we get there, let's stay with the Greeks for a minute. So, talk about how Nietzsche's in philosophy is a type of inversion of Plato's philosophy, right? So, you know, Plato begins with philosophy, and Nietzsche kind of begins with culture, and these are starting points of different ways of looking at life. 
So you talk about these three means Nietzsche ascribes to Plato's political strategy, purpose to writings, mode of political activism. How, I mean, I think it's been you know, well stated that Nietzsche was pretty influenced by Plato. He was influenced by lots of the Greeks, you know, obviously um, uh, Heraclitus and many of the other pre-Socratics, but Plato was a huge influence on Nietzsche's thought, especially it sounds like politically. So how how is Plato seem to be doing a, a kind of different task in terms of doing kind of straight, strict philosophy of sorts or that kind of thinking? Nietzsche was trying to look at how do we use this for a kind of culture? How was this inversion, of, Nietzsche's inversion of Plato's kind of uh, thinking and philosophy? Yeah, just, so there's a few parts there. I think that the yeah. first thing to, yeah, um, and this is surprising, but it's kind of interesting that um, Nietzsche really thinks it's Plato who's the turning point and not Socrates. Um, so, because the broader story to tell, which goes back again to this question of culture, and, and the links between German, Germany and, and, and Greece, at least as they're trying to theorize it. And it's like, well, when does Greek culture start going wrong? Um, and Nietzsche thinks um, Nietzsche thinks it's really Plato. It's with Plato that it starts going wrong. And the reason why he thinks it starts going wrong is that before all these greats, you've mentioned Heraclitus or, or Socrates, whatever, they all had, for him, they all had this one idea but that idea, that philosophical idea, was linked to the city or the, or wherever they were in Greece, and it was kind of a healthy relationship. But it's with Plato, where Plato turns away from the city and starts attacking it from the outside, mm. and that's when you have a separation then between culture, if you want, and, and politics. Mm. And Nietzsche thinks about well, okay, how how do we get back to a moment where philosophers are not these are actually are not these external people who are kind of ostracized and disliked by society more generally how do we get a, how do we get a healthy relationship between the two of them going um again but you know which goes back to this question we just had distribution of resources how is it that we you know how, how can we have this if we want great artists great philosophers then how do we organize society in such a way that we can have them so he really thinks about that so in many ways yes it's about going it's going it's going going back through time to recreate a harmony that was there that has been lost um, and so you mentioned also the the kind of uh, reverse Platonism. It's because uh, Nietzsche interprets Plato as especially all the ideas of you know the good in itself as as these abstract ideals that are outside of um, society. And Nietzsche doesn't want that separation. He wants us to bring us back into into the real. He, he talks about Plato as being it's, it's a flight away from reality. You know, the good is a flight away from reality. We don't want that. We want to. To be able to engage and, and come back with this engagement and, 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 and harmony. Um, and there's a longer story also for, for Plato, because um the, the Platonism at first, Nietzsche is like, well, Platonism at first is very, very elite. It's for a small group of people who are the followers of Plato. Um, that's fine. But he thinks also that over time, you know, Christianity takes over Platonism and makes Platonism for everybody. And that's that's when you start having the dominance of slave morality over master morality. So these are the things he wants to kind of go back. He doesn't think, Nietzsche doesn't think, oh, we just go back in time. But these are the points we need to think through to see if we can change the relationship between them. Yeah, well, we still see a lot of, um, you know, Christianization, if you will, of the Greeks, right? People are always trying to find Jesus and Aristotle or something like that, which is terribly obnoxious. Um, I guess... This idea of culture is a big one, right? Um, I guess Nietzsche's question was, and I think a question we have, so I'll bring it a little bit more present, is how do you 
how do you build a culture in some ways in his in his context? I guess in, in in a more modern context, it would be, you know, how do you how do you improve a culture or sustain a culture or in, in you know try to I don't say fix, but and, and, and you know, culture is not a, a static thing, right? I think it's a kind of living thing. It's a thing that's always kind of moving and changing. Before I get to democracy and all of its issues, uh, what what do you think about this idea of culture? For you know, in terms of you know Nietzsche's ideas about it, for kind of for us in a modern place, you know, we have these ideas. You know, I'll you know I'll get a little bit uh, spicy here a little bit. You know, culture is really wrapped up with uh, a lot of the times. I think inadvertently. Uh, with nationalism or patriotism, if you will, right? This is how we do this in this country or in this space or in this region. And for people that come from outside, well, that's not how we do it. Uh, so you have to adapt or things like that. You know, there's a distinct kind of what you were saying. There's like the German way, or maybe there's the British way, or there's the American way or whatever. And there's a, there's a, there's a way in which that looks, which would be a kind of, you know, you're, you're taking something that people from a long time ago built and you're preserving and maintaining that, you know, through time and you're, and you can, you should continuously build on that and, you know, progressively, hopefully make it better. But there is a kind of, I would assume, and maybe I'm wrong here, a buy-in to that. Like there's a culture. Like if I, if I move to, uh, Ghana, there's a culture there generally, I would imagine that is different from mexican culture right and that there's a they have a history and they have time and they have different people groups etc um america is a or united states is a little bit different um they like to pride themselves in you know the whole melting pot thing and we're you know nation of immigrants sort of and all that stuff and so i guess how do you how do how do we see you know, in in it makes sense for Nietzsche in Germany's time of okay, we're trying to be like actually the current modern state of Germany, not Prussia, not anything else. So how do we make this distinctive? You know, that's a kind of newer thing. I guess that might be the last thing. Might be um, the most things coming to my mind is like when Czechoslovakia broke up. It's, okay, how do we have like the Czech way and the Slovakia way? You know, whatever. But for the United States or for countries, you know, how do you do that with a place like China? It's been there for millennia you know or egypt millennia so how do you, how do we think about cultures that have already kind of been established whether for millennia or in the united states case 250 years or so what can we accurately pull from nietzsche's ideas about cultural generally that we can apply to some of our current modern states about culture yeah again a few things to get through there but um i think what's interesting because nietzsche you're right. So firstly, I think there's probably that distinction between culture understood as a way of kind of life and then high culture as in the creation of great works mm. of art. Mm. Um, so there's that distinction. But, um, you know, Nietzsche himself at the time, he was very critical, for instance, of universities or philosophy. He was like, well, these are just um, these, this is just kind of philosophy or culture that is there to justify the existence of the German or Prussian state. So in many ways, the state is appropriating culture to justify itself, which he didn't want. He's like, no, no, culture needs to be kind of left on its own and, 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 and uh, to create on its own. So 
as you were talking, I was like, okay, I think there's there's two things we could probably take from Nietzsche. One of them is that, well, if we're serious about creating high culture, then you know, it's not something that just happens on its own. It's something that needs to be invested in. Right. So that's the first um, question. And you know, obviously, what some of the things that Nietzsche was saying to contemporary ears sounds a bit off, but in in large, um, complex modern societies that we all live in. You know, we, we, you know, there are arts councils and there are things like that that do take taxation and then given in a certain direction. You know, this is distribution of resources. We don't have to talk about slavery anything along those lines, but it is about questions of distribution of resources. So that, I think, would be the first thing by thinking about the political and economic setup. It's like, well, if we're serious about having high culture, then is there enough resources going in that direction? And the second thing would be... I think this goes back slightly to the slave and and and, and uh, master morality thing. It's like, well, you know, these artists um, need to be able to create according to their own ethical stance, not something that's been imposed on them by society. They need to be able to do. Um, obviously, Nietzsche at the time was talking about, you know, that big distinction. Yes, master and slaves. That can we have a group of people who are, are not going to be completely subsumed by what he thought was the dominant state morality at the time, mm. can they do their own thing? Can they live their own ethical lives? And, and so there's a need also to, Nietzsche has this, this idea that, well, actually, you know, artists often need to be protected, right? They're, 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 they can be very sensitive, et cetera, or very, uh, very weak in some instances. Sometimes they, they need uh, protection too. He would say, you know, they need protection from the herd or whatever it might be. And these are perhaps strong words for us today, but that's the that's the language um he would use in it. But but conceptually, I think that still makes sense to us. It's like one, don't let the state appropriate culture just to justify itself. Mm-hmm. Secondly, think about, well, if we're serious about this, how do we distribute resources to make it in such a way that we can have, you know, that the artists can be supported or whatever it might be. And three, then again, do not impose on them a form of morality and say, okay, you know, your art needs to follow this form of morality. It's like, no, no, like, give them space for them to be able to create according to their own ethical, um, their own ethical ideas, and and actually for be for that to be in a, a place of experimentation beyond the herd, if you want to use Nietzsche mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I fully agree. I think when you think about the arts and the humanities and how you know, at least in the United States, there's obviously a less and less from from a kind of state piece of it uh emphasis people try to you know defund those types of programs to allow people to do that or to be taught that and then also i think maybe in a more general context here there's an emphasis now on creating content and less about creating art and i think that's you know a a, a real uh, kind of just poison on our modern culture because we have a lot of really wonderful tools and people just choose to make content as opposed to art. And there's not that's not for everybody. There's many people uh, that are, um, but it becomes increasingly difficult when you have to acquiesce to, um, you know, whatever the demands are of various incentives. And I think in a, in a certain way, you know, Nietzsche is always kind of prophetic in some ways. <laughs> you see how that's a perversion on our society. We're not edified by those things and we're not creating things and we're not, you know, if you think about in the big picture, you know, in the past, let's say 10 years, <clears throat> you know, what are the, what are, what are the, the landmark things we can say we created? If all we have is content, but we don't have anything that's timeless or, or that lasts past a certain point, you know, that's a, that's such a waste of, of time and, and potential creation that we could have. 
Um, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, and I think Nietzsche does move towards an idea that look, there are there are, there, are, there are different spheres in society, and and yes, okay, you have your Instagram sphere of content, and you know, okay, that that's that's how it is, and that's okay. But can there be another sphere that isn't dominated by that? I think that's right. that's how, that's the position he moves towards. Right. Because if you do it historically, it's like okay, the Greeks they didn't have obviously they didn't have Instagram content, but they didn't have that kind of culture. It was a very kind of pyramid top down. Yeah. And in his critique of German at the time, is that precisely the the, the great culture that they might have was just being appropriated by the state. So it's been trans- transformed into culture, into content, sorry, as you just said. And he said, well, if we project onto the future, you know, we're not going to go, we're not going to go back to the ancient Greeks, but is there, can we find a way in which those two spheres can can coexist in some way? And I, I still think that's an interesting question. I think it's still, it's still one of the challenges of, of, of contemporary politics. Can there be a, a coexistence between these two spheres without one completely dominating the other? Um, and at the time, Nietzsche thought his biggest concern was thought that the, the sphere of content, as you've just described very nicely there, was was completely dominating the other one and the other one didn't have any space to do anything at all. And so that's, um, yeah, so, and working out how that coexistence might uh, happen, I think it's still one of the big questions of contemporary politics, if we are committed to this idea that you know, yes, as you say, it's it's important to have high culture. It's important to have these timeless works of art, and not just Instagram content. If we want something beyond that, then then we are. These are the questions we need to be asking ourselves. And Nietzsche obviously was trying to sometimes, perhaps virulently, because that was the environment he was in. He was really trying to fight to create a space within which that would still be possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's still a valid fight for us today. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. So. Let's, let's talk about kind of his political philosophy of his theory of state and what that meant. So we've been talking kind of around it, but kind of more directly. Um, he wasn't a big, at least it doesn't seem, he wasn't a big fan excuse me, of uh, democracy. And now that, that that's going to turn a lot of people off in, you know, everyone likes to pride themselves in saying that they're a democracy, whether they actually are or not is another question. The United States likes to say they're a democracy. Sure. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of Western European countries like to say they're a democracy. Sure. Um, whether they they say that, whether they actually act and function that way, that's another question. I think that's pretty debatable. But for the most part, if you're in casual conversation, people will obviously say like democracy is the way to do things. You know, everyone has a you know equal share to say and blah blah blah. Um, he didn't like that. It doesn't seem. Um, and so what's the kind how did he see a decay of the state you can talk about what he thought the state should be what it, how what the decay of that would be and why democracy was not the way or why he was not favorable for democracy yes well so there's two things there so there's the stage already and then there's, and there's democracy we've, we've yep. spoken a bit about the stage yeah and for you know for him he was hoping the stage would be a tool within which in when in which high culture could still thrive so that was always the kind of um the idea mm. so for democracy and it's important to remember also you know again he's running in the 19th century so the democracy that he knew it's very different to the democracy that yeah. we know today yeah. so for him it's, it's it's kind of an incoming tide he does have some experience there's some elections um 
that he is, there's an action, actually an election in, in Germany, but he's too young. I think the voting age is 21 at the time. and He's too young. He doesn't get to vote, but he does see an action. He spends obviously a bit of time in Switzerland too, which has a bit more of a, a, a history of direct democracy. So he witnesses that. So when he talks about, the, when he talks about democracy, it does also mean different things. Even when we talk about democracy, we mean often different things. Do yes. we mean, yeah, yeah. oh, do we mean the institutions, as you rightly say? Do we mean the kind of like the ideology of saying, oh, democracy is everyone's equal? What are the different things? And you you get that play also with Nietzsche. Yeah. So it, in the short answer is to say he associates democracy with slave morality, right? The idea everybody's equal, you know, and and you know the the, the grade should be cut down, and we we don't want any of that, and everybody should live in the same way, et cetera, et cetera. He really sees democracy. Um, as you know, we talked about Platonism, how and how Christianity picks up on that. Yeah. He thinks of democracy as a as a kind of form of political Christianity. If Christianity has this idea that everybody's equal in front of God, yeah. then democracy is uh, is the political version um, of that. Mm-hmm. So, so there's an immediate association with with slave morality, um, which he's worried about. So he's worried about the general leveling of society. It's like, oh, if we go towards democracy, there definitely won't be any space for high culture because precisely they say, well, no, it doesn't accept the fact that. There has to be a degree of inequality, whichever way you want to conceptualize that, to be able to have high culture. If if there's democracy, everybody's equal, then, well, no, there's no space for artists who are trying to do something different because that's beyond the herd. So there is that worry. Having said that, um, you know, and you just talk about institutions of democracy too, and sometimes as well, the fight for the institutions of democracy, sometimes these are good things because they they kind of erect barriers. And it's when he's talking about the... It, does he really mean democracy? Does he mean liberalism? Those those terms are a bit more fluid in the 19th century than they are for, for us today. Right. But yeah. he does have these ideas sometimes. Oh well, you know, um, there are certain things that are con- constructed which which guarantee certain things, certain rights. Well, maybe that's that's a basis. That's a good thing. We have rights. That means these can't be taken away. So we can be, maybe build on rights and to have like art rights for artists, or um, it gives a, it gives a degree of protection. But he does ultimately see. So with Nietzsche, there's always different moving parts. He does like, okay, is there, yes, there's going to be um, there's going to be democratization understood as a general leveling of society, equalization and homogenization of society, which he was against. Yet at the same time, so well, when that process is kind of going to a certain point, then there will be, because, you know, this is the, the, the Nietzschean credo, which is that only uh, it's uh, it's only through an aesthetic phenomena that life is justified right that famous infamous mm-hmm. line from the birth of tragedy which i think he holds to throughout his life which is why high art is so important because you need a way if we're just here on on earth suffering animals you know at the end of the, geneal- the genealogy of morality he just says the problem is not suffering or pain the problem is giving meaning to that pain and there's right. different ways you can give meaning mm-hmm. to it you can give meaning in the christian way of, of giving it right but it's always aesthetic, and even Christianity is very aesthetic in, in, in different course, ways yeah. too, right? So, so you always need this aesthetic justification, whichever whichever one is going to be. Obviously, then he has his ideas about which ones are better than others. Mm-hmm. You know, the Christianity one is not really what he wants. Maybe we can have a bit of high culture. So, so even in this leveling, democratization, homogenization, at a certain point, because there's always a need for justification that democracy, on his account, does not provide. This will call upon a new a new, what he thinks, a new kind of artistic class who will be asked to provide that new, that justification. Mm. Right? So there's this kind of like inverse, if you want, a curve, where yes, there's homogenization, there's all these things, 
but because but but life and even democracy still needs some form of aesthetic justification. And if that is then there, democracy will call upon this new this new these new philosophers. These are the people he talks about. Oh, the free spirits, the new philosophers, the legislators, the nobility of the, of the future. That's who he has in mind. It's like yes, there's a process of, of democratization, but at a certain point there'll be a call for these new people. And he's trying to prepare the ground for these new people. He's also trying to prepare and for trying to prepare these new people too. Often his writings have to be understood as like, okay, you know, you guys or you people, when the chance comes, this, these are things that you have to think about. So don't don't fall for slave morality. Don't fall for that. You really need to do your own thing. That's in many ways the kind of the call for arms that you get in each Yeah, you explain it really nicely. I think, you know, I wonder, you made a distinction there between democracy as a kind of, uh, concept um, and democracy is like a kind of um, you know how we see political institutions or things like that and I, and I wonder you, you tell me what you what you think here I think on on the human piece of it I'm not sure what his views are on you know is everybody created you know equal kind of thing as a human as a human you know so like we're all humans you know we all should have certain kinds of rights but I think, and this is this is something that I'm more comfortable with, but I think most people aren't, is there's wonderful inequalities among people in their merits, their talents, their abilities. And we should promote people that have, you know, for example, I mean, there's plenty of people that are much smarter than me, much more talented than me, much more athletic than me. And that's fine. That that's not that's not something that I, you know, at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> life is a kind of game of luck, right? So if you have a certain circumstances or a certain genetics or a certain environment, good for you, right? Uh, I don't think that's anything to be jealous about necessarily or whatever. But I do think that it doesn't make me any better or worse than a human being. Um, I think we're all just humans and we're all a fortune of luck in a lot of ways. But in terms of your abilities or your merits or your you know genetic disposition and or your environmental context yeah i mean there's people that can create music and make high art that i can't and i want to put all of the stuff into those people that make great films and you know books and literature and uh, so many other things Obviously, the physical sciences as well, and all the things that people can create. I mean, I don't have the mind of an engineer or a physicist. Absolutely, we should push those people up. That's what helps us, you know, people that are building rockets and building AI and building, yeah, yeah, we should boost those people. But that doesn't mean that the the folks that are doing things that aren't in that way creation, so the person that, you know, changes my lights or fixes my plumbing or whomever, that they should be treated less as a person um, and that their work isn't in, uh, uh, unimportant. It's uniquely important in some ways. But for people that are creating art or high art, we should invest in that. So there is an inequality there in terms of one aspect of it, which I don't have any uncomfortability with. I know a lot of people do, but personally, I don't. But I guess is that how do we have like, or how how is his thought on like, I guess equality kind of like on a baseline as a kind of human level that he really believed that like there were people better than others 
or was it just kind of the talents and merits and all the other things that he was interested in? Yeah, let me, okay, let me take that in different terms. I, I think you mentioned at a certain point, you said envy, you know, it makes mm-hmm. certain people are envious. I think that was the thing that he was most worried about, right? Is mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that kind of slave morality say, no, you know, you, you know, you people, you, you can't, you can't do this. You know, you, we, we want to, we want to cut you down to size of it. So, so that general kind of like envy, resentment, right? All these terms that he uses, resentment, et cetera. That's what he wanted to push back against. So, so there's already that. Second, yes, of course, you know, uh, as you just said, he did think there were certain people who were able to create high art and other people who, who couldn't. Um, and then again, as we've been talking quite a bit about how to organize society in such a way that those people are perhaps promoted. Um, and there is, there is, I think, with Nietzsche in general, the, the sense that, you know, he wants people to be able to, to develop as much as, as possible. And so the question is, like, does society allow that, yes or no? Or is it kind of constraining? This is often the thing we talk about state, state morality is that it constrains people that might have done something else and say, no, you, you can't do that because it's not morally good or whatever it might be. It, it places a constraint, whereas Nietzsche's people, it's it's about flourishing. It's about human self-flourishing. That's, you know, in many ways, you know, one of the figures that we have from Nietzsche is the Ubermensch, right? It's overcoming humankind as they are he wants that to be able to continue and if we have this envy resentment all these types of things then we're not going to have that so there's that then there is that there is that question about Nietzsche does talk about aristocracies um yeah and so that is a, a, a kind of a thorny um question and it's a thorny question also not just also and how we interpret Nietzsche but also for us today I think mm-hmm. um the one thing I would say is that he doesn't think that um he, there may be a natural aristocracy, but it doesn't necessarily, I don't think he believes in aristocracy in the old sense of the world of like, oh, the bloodline, that mm-hmm. I don't think he has much time for. Um, so he doesn't have much time for that, but he does think there's probably a natural aristocracy in the many ways that you've described there. Some people are excellent you know, physicists and certain people are actually artists or whatever. And, you know, right. I'm, I'm neither of these things either. Right. So, so, and I have no problem. And I think this is great. And I think we should be encouraging all these people to do all this fantastic stuff. So, so mm-hmm. we're on the same page for that. Um, and then, there, it, but it does then go back to the question of how do you organize society? And he do, Nietzsche does talk about wanting to te- keep these two kind of spheres differently. There's this idea of the because he has this idea, the notion of the pathos of distance. Mm. He said, "Oh well, those who will achieve great things is because they are used to looking down on other people." So mm-hmm. there is there is an element of that um, in Nietzsche. Now, the form that that takes is. You know, it could be lots of different ways in which I think does does it, it does it mean economic difference? Does it mean simply a cultural difference? They say, well, you know, we're we look down on the on the content um, people, Instagram influencers. Yeah, we look down on them, and we try to do something else. We try to do something that's more worthwhile or timeless, as, as you say. So that can I think that can manifest itself in, in in different ways. I maybe I don't know. To some of your listeners, maybe I'm kind of like I'm kind of slightly uh unsharpening Nietzsche's fans perhaps uh, you know like giving it <laughs> a slightly soft version um, of him mm-hmm. um you know because he does say a kind of quite stringent things about aristocracy caste society which yeah. he's very interested in and and the question is yes when he's talking about them he's obviously giving historical examples but I think with Nietzsche then the question becomes not just for him, but for us, it's like, well, what does that mean for us today to talk about these types of things? And I think we can articulate them in the way I think hopefully we've been doing so far. There's ways in articulating and make us think about it. And I think that's probably what, I don't know if that's what Nietzsche would have wanted, but certainly that's how I, I, I move forward if you want with Nietzsche. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that there's the 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 hard parts for me about Nietzsche and his philosophy that um I don't want to say I agree or disagree with. It just always challenges me. Uh, that's just the, the thing. And I think obviously he's not perfect, of course, but um he's definitely someone that pushes you to really reevaluate um your ideas about things it's like you know i i think this way and i feel this way but damn it what why why do i oh, i mean he's pushing me to think about that and but the hardest things are yeah slavery caste society those are the things that are always the hardest for me obviously because we we understand you know <laughs> slavery is terrible um there's not the finer size of a caste society that we see in some countries um and then you know i think he has uh, of the time you know these uh you know there's but maybe of the not of the time, but definitely shortly after, and by today's standards, you know some some uh, you know misogynistic views about women. You know, I mean, I, I think those are always the the sticking points that people have with criticism of him, which are fair. I mean, those are totally fair. Um, but the the slavery caste thing is always a hard thing for me because it's I try to <clears throat> if you're trying to read it accurately i mean obviously just the word slavery just has negative content there's no like finer side to slavery but i i wonder is there like a in 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 philosophy things are a little bit more flexible i guess in some ways and and i don't know if that's a good or bad thing but you know is he in 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 how you if you're trying to create culture you're trying to have a philosophy of life you're trying to understand how humans can be not beholden to a type of you know slave morality you know what does that look like for everybody but also it does seem that he's trying i don't know if he has the answer but he's trying to figure out how do you organize a society politically too right he's trying to i don't think he has the the definitive end answer but one of that is it it does seem he does uh uh subscribe to a kind of tier system that there is a hierarchy that's it's it definitely feels hierarchical not in a way where people don't have i don't think value per se but there are some uh abilities or merits that we should um you know put more weight behind than brothers i don't know if he's i don't I, I, there's nothing in his philosophy in my reading of it that talks about dehumanizing people or anything like that or you know calling for people to be put on camps because they're worthless because they're part of the herd like there's nothing like that in any of his philosophy so i think it's just that's where people kind of assume that kind of language goes but how do you kind of see these ideas of like you know his ideas of slavery and a tier system where do you kind of see where his thinking is on that again it's a, it is kind of a thorny issue yeah, yeah, you're right. You say the slavery one is the biggest challenge. Um, but you've also said, you know, the way that Nietzsche writes certain things and then to, to challenge you. And like, the, for instance, the stuff about the Greek state, you know, that was a, in many ways a polemical piece against Wagner, right? Because they're having this argument about what's the relationship. And when Wagner was talking about slavery in the German, modern German context, what he had in mind were the, the factory workers, right? Like mm -hmm. that was, that he was like, that's the, these are the contemporary slaves, the factory workers, and we need, they need to be liberated also for us to have a truly high culture. And Nietzsche is saying, well, no, actually, we, we need these people to work in these factories so that other people don't have to work in these factories. That's that's the polemic. So that is an ongoing um, 
It's an ongoing challenge. Sorry, there were other those there were other parts of your question, perhaps that I um, that I yeah. Well, me but no, that was the, that was the big thing. Was was how does he? My understanding is again, you're you're reading somebody that was writing in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. So he's talking about slavery. He's talking about a caste system, which in our modern context we just see those as like taboo yeah. words. But I, you're right. Like if you maybe there, it's not the the language used. It's maybe an an example of this is like you know uh, Freud had a bunch of language or uh, words he used as well that seems so strange to us in 2023 it's like neuroticism and you know the there's all of these different ways in which you hysteria and all these things that you know we don't use anymore but i think there's i think you have to be careful with like you know retranslating in some ways but you know if he's talking about slavery in a sense of like yeah people that you know let me put it in a modern context yeah people that work you know, at McDonald's and, you know, or people are working three jobs and like, you know, they're kind of a slave to like, you know, this is, you know, to, to economically, we obviously need people to work in those places. Right. Um, for sure. But maybe it's like, that's a kind of, you're beholden to a kind of way of like life. And that's, you know, there has to be people that do those jobs. I think where you can maybe build off of that is saying like, yeah, we obviously don't want to mistreat them. You don't want them to have unequal you know pay, but though that some of that has to get done and 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 some people don't mind it i I know i know plenty of people personally that like doing kind of like day labor work they like it it's very they they don't want to be creating and you know philosophizing about all these they don't want to do that they they like bricklaying they they like they like you know putting up roofs or you know or you know drywall or whatever that's fine they have a very simple life and it's very nice for them and so but would you call that a kind of slavery? I mean, you know, slavery is obviously like you're treated less than an animal, you're not paid and all these things. But I, I wonder if there's a kind of flexibility there. Maybe not. And that's, I think, one of the hardest things with him is how do you take something from the 1870s and this idea of what he was saying about slavery from that context? And maybe it just doesn't apply in a modern context, but it's, it's, a, it's a challenging thing, I guess. He does have this line at one point. He said, well, if you, um, somebody who spends two thirds, if you don't have two thirds of your day for yourself free, then you are a slave. If yeah. you have, if you're spending two thirds of your day doing something for somebody else, whether you're employed or whatever it might be, <laughs> then you're a slave. So like, if that's the, if that's the criteria, yeah, then, you know, we're yes, slaves. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah. um, and he does have, that's to go back to the, the slavery and the greed question, because he says, well, yeah, of course, you know, there's all these people who are at the time were slaves, but he does have, he does have this idea that their life is justified because precisely there's this great artistic cultural development and that they recognize themselves that their work has contributed to it. And in some ways his concern is that that link is lost again in modernity where people are working, but they don't see like, Oh, I've done all this, but like, what, what's, what, what, how is my life kind of justified? So I think that is that is still um, yeah I think that's a, a reflection. It's true that he does like caste um, caste society, like he's interested in the Indian caste society, and mm-hmm. um, that he learns about. Um, although he and and of course you know partially there is so you have kind of the intellectuals, the Brahmins who are the higher caste. So this is something that mm-hmm. he wants. He, he's quite in favor of because obviously he wants to protect philosophers, artists, and people like like himself. Mm-hmm. So there, yeah, um, and he doesn't want to. 
I think it's, it's still important to put him kind of like in this context of why is he writing these things and who is he kind of targeting? Because obviously in the 19th century, still very dominated by the church, by the military, these types of things that he wants to attack. And he says, well, you know, at the moment we have these people and they're the ones who are at the top of society. Mm-hmm. But they're not the right people, and we want to take them down. And obviously, you're saying he hasn't. He has some very strong words. We know about priests and 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 religion yeah. and Christianity, right? So he, um, he and he wants to invert that. He uses that like the caste society. He said, "Well, caste society in India has these untouchables, right? Who are at the very, very bottom." And he calls, but uh, so I don't know if this is the right term, but he, the term he uses is chandalas to describe them. He says, so what we need to do is we need to change it around where it's the priests who become our chandelas, right? We want to invert, we want to reverse a society within which we're, and there are those stronger kind of words um, that are um, that are used. Although I try to argue in my book, it's like we, we have to understand this as, as more of a spiritual warfare. It's not going to be a physical warfare, which would be a form of petty politics anyway. We need to get away from that. Mm. So I think these are the ways to hopefully think them through. Um, it's clear that he wants some kind of hierarchical society. It's clear that he thinks that the people at the top of the hierarchy should be the artists, philosophers, these types of people, and not... In many ways, that's often the criticism of, of democracy, too. It's like, well, look at the, the kind of um, values that democracy promotes. It promotes, you know, billionaires and athletes and all these types of superstars. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, well... Maybe that's not a, that's not the values that we want to promote or put on a pedestal. Perhaps we should be putting philosophers and artists or whatever in a pedestal. So that's that's also, I think, a helpful way of um, of, of thinking about it. But there are the yeah, the slavery one is the is, is the hard is the hard case. So hierarchical society. But as you right, rightly pointed out, you know, we live in democracies. There are as many hierarchies in, yeah. in our democratic societies. There's you yeah. know, we have the economic one percent, right? Um, and who have disproportionate um, influence on not just our economy but our, our politics. So if it's if you put it back in that context, it's like, well, okay, the hierarchies um, exist. Who do we want to put on top, or who, or can we defend other people who are not on top at the moment? Yeah, and those are, I think, that's the way to think about it. Yeah, for me, if you take the 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 biggest, I think, the big picture idea, can you imagine a society like you were saying where instead of we say well, that's how it is, or money makes the world go round, or you know things like that that we say. Imagine if we were very active in choosing the society that we create, where we put philosophers, we put uh, really good thinkers, we put artists, we put uh, people that do all in all forms of of uh, or all mediums of of art, and that became the standard, right? Uh, we can, I mean, there's a, another conversation to be had about what is art, which continues to be debated for, you know, ever and ever and ever. Um, so, right, the, you know, the banana stuck to the wall, that's not art to me. I don't think it's art to most people. I don't want that to be the standard of high society. Please, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, people people that are writing good novels and making good films and making good music, things that obviously there's a range where art is, different preferences and styles but that people are, are ascribing to it. And I think if you had, I mean, I have no idea how to construct a society in that way, but if like, if you had incentives that were promoting that, if you gave people the space, right, kind of this, this time, energy, space to create, I think you get a lot more out of people. And most people do things because they have to or because they need to pay something or because they need to. And so 
our, our many much of our society is dominated by uh, an economic or consumerist thing. And so, you know, obviously, if you go down that path, that leads to kind of Marxism and communism and like, ah, fuck the system. And like, that's not what I'm promoting per se. But I, I do think in a kind of, in a way, imagine if we had a society where, right, likes and retweets and, you know, Instagram influencers and reality TV, you know, wasn't, you know, poisoning our mind. And instead, we had ways in which we were you know, we had the space at least to to find the art, and that was encouraged. Um, you know, I think that would be demonstrably different in how people are. Imagine if you come into a world where that was encouraged. You know, don't be the doctor or the lawyer necessarily. You know, you can if you want, but you know, go 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 do philosophy. You know, go do actual psychology. Uh, you know, that would be a much different world. That would be a, I can't even conceptualize that world. I mean, that, maybe that's a good science fiction, uh, unfortunately, science fiction <laughs> story to write or make. But that would be interesting. And I think, I mean, I think that's a society I think a lot of people would want to live in. But, you know, I think we, you know, kind of go to our kind of our, our instincts, our negative instincts, or this all id of making money and all these things. And that's. That's still where our, our 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 livelihood is, even in the face of, you know, big catastrophes. We still try and find a way to greed and trying to to have money generally, which is uh, which is frustrating. It's very frustrating. Yeah, which is you know, there's a lot of emphasis in Nietzsche on on morality, right? So we have a morality that that values what actually values yeah money and values these kind of material material things. Um, and so yeah, and I think to, for Nietzsche, I think he does move to the position to say well. If, if we can't have philosophers or whatever as the top of society, then but can we still have a space and window which they they, they can kind of do their thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and in, yeah, in some ways, I mean, one simple thing might be, you know, what would the Nietzschean politics be today? One of one of them might be, you know, yeah, okay, have have you know, to give more give more funding towards arts councils or or whatever it might be. That may be, or, or education obviously is a kind of an important one. And then we can drink down because you, because I think Nietzsche would want to say, you know. A lot of the universities today are perhaps not doing what they really should be doing. No, um, they're you know they're training people and et cetera, et cetera. And he was already at his time critical of the kind of dominant Hegelianism that was there at the time, which is like, well, this is just it's just creating you know philosophy is meant to and education is meant to to challenge you and make you think differently. Here, instead, what we're having is we're getting all these people who are going to be trained to be civil servants or soldiers, et cetera, et cetera, just going to feed into the Prussian kind of war machine, the great politics Prussian war machines. Like, well, that's not what we, that's not what education should be about. So, you know, we can look at different things and then say, well, this is what he would want to say about that. In the book, I spoke because given the context, he, he was really talking about Europe and how he didn't want these kind of like nationalistic wars between France and Germany, et cetera, that he was thinking more, oh, actually, the future really would be something about European unity and creating a new a European culture. That would be something that would be new and worthwhile trying trying to achieve. Just different ways in which that could be articulated also today. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's true. Um, you know, there's the interpretation of Nietzsche, and then there's how we, we try to use what he's given us to, to think about and i i always think yes you what you get is you get these you get these ideas you get yeah master state morality you get um different things um whatever it's obviously you have the ideas to uberman to try return culture all these different things and you say well he's given us all this we, we get a sense of what he meant by it in his time which is obviously different to ours but if we still have these categories of thoughts they can help us still think about where we are today 
and and think them through think it through those categories too precisely. So you say, well, yeah, we live in democracy. Okay, what's valued in the democracy? Well, it seems to be these types of things that you might that Nietzsche might have called out. These are just examples of slave morality, right? You, if yeah. I mean, you could, I mean, you have followers, right? Yeah. <laughs> On Twitter, it's the right. herd. Like that's right. it, right? It's yeah. Like in many ways, okay, so that's so we can use these categories to say that and say, okay, right? That is there. Nietzsche never. There was never an idea in Nietzsche where well, we should get rid of that completely. I mean, because the line is always like, he doesn't want to get rid of slave morality. He wants to get rid of slave morality, claiming it's the only morality possible. That was really his his mm-hmm. his kind of war horse. And so, okay, well, we have that. We have followers, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we're all guilty of it, I think. And then, but is there space for something else? And mm-hmm. what is that space? How do we create it? How do we defend it? Blah, 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 blah. That was the question. I think, and that's fundamentally still, uh, I think, a very valid question for, for those of us who are or who think this is important. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. I think that, that that's going to exist and always exist probably, but we shouldn't encourage and push for that. That shouldn't be the aim. That shouldn't be the thing that people aspire to, right? I think this, this aim you, you find within yourself is, you know, how do you find, you know, a kind of master morality and, and, and a morality that's that comes from within that you understand for yourself that you've, you've found uh, or you've uncovered not just kind of, you know, manualized, handed to you by society or religion or, you know, any of these other things. It's something that it still may be that you have similar moral ethics, right? Of, yeah, don't kill people. That's not a good thing to do. That's fine. You don't have to believe in a religion to know that, though, right? The, the fact is that you find it for you and it's yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people, I think, fall in line in a lot of ways and that, you know, of things. But there is going to be a flexibility there. And as long as you know it and it comes from within you, I think that's that's a little bit better than just saying like, well, you know, this is what my priest or, you know, whatever told me to do. And it's like, OK, that's 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 not that's not going to be very helpful for you as an individual when you're making choices or not. And I think that that's, um, you know, kind of his his project. A few questions here. So uh zarathustra's i mean i mean it's his greatest work it's what he said was his greatest work it's amazing um i guess that most people think about it in a variety of different ways but I, I, one of the questions i never thought about i kind of thought about it when i was reading the book was how do we see his some of his political thought in zarathustra it's not something i kind of look toward zarathustra for but if if there is any in there but what do you, what do you where do you see some of that or where does that comes out yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure it's his most political mm-hmm. book. Um, the the main thing coming through in that is the you know the thought of the eternal return. That's where you do Uber mention it's linked to the eternal return. Although, you know, the, the very first scene when Zarathustra goes down to the marketplace and you know he tries to teach them the, the Uber mention, everybody laughs at him. Yeah, um, I came too soon. Then, I came yeah, too soon. Yeah, exactly. And then and then he teaches them you know the last man, and they all say, yeah, that's what we want. That's what we want. That's what we want. I mean, in some ways, that's already very political, which is like, that's the challenge mm-hmm. of politics is that, mm-hmm. well, everybody wants to be the last man, or at least this, this account, everybody wants to be the last man. And how, how do you even, how do you even go about trying to, trying to create the Ubermensch? And the only follower then he has, and he doesn't want to follow those who wants kind of companions. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a key uh, separation is the, uh, is the gesture who ends up falling to his death, and, you know, and he buries him and that's it. And there, okay, so, and then it's, there, there are certain, so it's it's perhaps a bit, I mean, like the whole of the book anyway, it's kind of more oblique um, anyway. Um, 
but uh, there's even those discussions about the flies in the marketplace or how do you deal with people who are trying to trying to take you down or kind mm-hmm. of full of resentment mm-hmm. trying to take you down and how Zara Twister tries to avoid them. So those are those are the ones that open the door, I think, to to those political questions. But those books are just such. I'm not sure it's the most um, it's the most political of the works. Um, there have different ones that are a bit more talk more directly. I mean, this is also what we tend to forget is that Nietzsche does have sessions where he talks directly about politics. Human or to human has all these sessions yeah. on 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 democracy, on the state. And Beyond Good and Evil has it too. He talks about, you know, oh, international politics, nations and nationalism. You know, what is it to be noble? There is these, there are these sections that are directly on politics. Perhaps it's not constructed in the way that Hobbes' Leviathan right. is constructed, right? right. But right. none of Nietzsche's books are constructed in that way anyway. So it's a bit no. silly to, to, to think about it um, that way. There, there's always different themes and it runs across it. So reading him is, um, is kind of a challenge too. But, and I, I, Zaratustra is wonderful. I'm, um, and I know at the universities there's a tendency to teach a genealogy of morality in many ways because again it's 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 kind of more straightforward. Yeah, it's more it's on one theme, and so you can read it through, and it kind of kind of makes sense. Whereas if you if you read Beyond Good and Evil, then you have all these different themes. So it's kind of harder mm-hmm. hard to teach. But I still think that Beyond Good and Evil is perhaps one of the most complete of his um of his yeah. of his texts. And I just I, still, I just reread it. It's it is very um, complete in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I tend to recommend it as actually the, the, the text, but uh, to, to read if somebody wants to read Nietzsche, it's like, yeah, read Beyond yeah, Good and Evil. That's, what I, that's, yeah. the one. that's yeah. what I say too. I say, if you want a good kind of, some people ask me that, what's a good place to start? Yeah. I'll say, well, you can read really anything, but I would say, maybe don't start with Echo Homo. <laughs> um, yeah. I usually say, Beyond Good and Evil is a good starting point. And then usually gay science shortly after that, which is okay. my favorite. Right. Um, so. Because- I, I guess the, the other thing I want to ask real quick is is uh, you kind of I think end with these kind of principles of his great politics. Talking a couple couple of principles. The first one is creating a power to breed a superior mankind as a whole. Um, another one is war to death against vice and all types of anti nature. Uh, creating a party of life, and um, the rest follows from all of these. So, wh- what do you make of these kind of principles here about his great politics? Yeah. Um... Yeah, this is Nietzsche trying to think through um, how how could he affect change. So it's also at the end of his life where he, uh, the way I interpret it, at least. I mean, people we can talk about him going going crazy and and how that and the impact that that might have on some of his later writings. But I I think he's at the point where you know he's kind of he has developed all this main philosophical. I don't want to say necessarily system, but his philosophical ideas are there. Um, whether it's the Uberman, Zarathustra, the eternal return, the will to power, all these types of things, he has this, and he's like, okay, well, if I'm serious about this, and I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, put, I mean, saying Bismarck is this is a form of petty politics, and whoa, and I have I started to develop a vision about at least where European unity would be something very important within that, away from the type of wars that France and Italy and Germany, et cetera, et cetera, are having. Mm. And how would how would I start going about? Um, achieving this change and how would I, these figures that I've called upon, that I keep calling upon, the free spirits, the new nobility, the legislative future, how do I put this together in a way that could be actionable almost, I don't like that term, but in, in a contemporary setting. And and I think that's when you get these starts principles. And I put a lot of emphasis on this idea of the, of the party of life, of, of, of people, of bringing these people together across Europe, like-minded people across Europe, and then for them to really start pushing for the things that they find important. And it is important to remember, you know, 
we were talking earlier on about the distinction that Bernard Williams actually nicely makes between morality understand as an institution that's kind of imposed on you and ethics, something that you develop yourself. We're a bit, we are luckily freer, I think, in our 20th century society. We Perhaps religion doesn't have the same hold as, as, it, as it did then, and it's not institutionalized in such a way. But, you know, Germany at the time as well, it's like you have a king, you know, you have a you have a, you have an emperor. You have the, the you have the state religion. You have the military. Everything's very much imposed on you. There's a lot less space for 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 the type of free spirited free thinking. And so, within that context, how do we get a, a group of people to to try to push and to try to create that space? And so, this is what Nietzsche's kind of um, I think trying to write at, at the moment. He's, and he's calling for you know an international movement. This is the 19th century. Oh, also, international movements, you know, Marx is there. You have Marxism, you have international socialism, you have these types of things. And when they mean party, they mean these types of international movements. And he would have witnessed some of them in, in Switzerland and Basel. He would have seen there was international. He's like, well, what, you know, why don't we do something? Why don't we guys do something similar? We who think that we want to defend high art against these threats that we're seeing from the church, from the military, from these wars. We want to defend um, high art. So how do we go about doing that? And let's try to get together. It's an international call. And he has specific ideas about who should be in it, <laughs> um, which are interesting um, to say that these compared to where he was then appropriated afterwards. So um, so I think that's how to think about it. He's trying to set out. And there's this, there's this conundrum because on the one hand, obviously, he's calling for these figures. But these figures, if they're going to be something new, then you can't predetermine what these figures are going to be. Mm. You can't do if the Ubermensch appears. We will. We can't say what the Ubermensch will be precisely because the Ubermensch will have overcome the modern modern humankind that we are. So we can't say it is. We can, but we can set as as kind of a, a context or a structure or give certain elements. You know certain morality, certain um, virtues too, right? Nobility, be hard, these types of things that he talks about at the end of, of Zarathustra. And the party of life then is this kind of idea, well, you can bring this all together and this international movement will try to create a space within which this creation can keep coming and perhaps then, you know, move towards um, these these overcomings of, of modern 19th century humankind into, into something new. Mm. Um, and that's that could be the the aim of that um, that association, mm. yeah. and, and why not? Yeah, why not? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's a it's a big project that I think I don't know if anybody's taking it seriously, and and I think that there's a lot of things there. So, uh, my last question for you is is how how can we should we uh, apply Nietzsche's great politics for navigating uh, our politics, uh, society, and culture? And you know, 21st century. I mean, how do you know we're a quarter of the way through the 21st century almost? And uh, <laughs> how do we how do we pull from some of his ideas, uh, you know, with accuracy of sorts to say there's things we could really, really get here for maybe internationally or or in certain places for our own politics or how we how we improve our culture or society. What 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 can we say? of how this applies for, for us in the 21st century. Yeah, and I think you can divide that question also into two and say, well, on the one hand, what does Nietzsche give us in terms of being able to analyze the society within which we are, and then the, maybe the more normative element um, to it. And I think I still, you know, these master and slave morality, like, uh, you know, you, you look at certain political developments. I wrote, a, when the book came out, it was just around the time of the, of the uh, um, referendum, the Brexit referendum in the mm -hmm. UK. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, this was my attempt at uh, having some kind of influence. I wrote a piece saying, obviously just saying, defending the idea that the UK should remain because uh, because you could say that the, the Brexit case was a form of slave morality, right? What was it? It was about fragmentation, nationalism, nationalism pettiness. It was all these things. So mm-hmm. there's ways in which I think those categories can still help us make sense of, um, of the politics of today. And then there's the normative elements behind it too, which is like, okay, well, um, you know, what are the things that we're still trying to encourage? We're still trying to encourage um, the formation of, of free spirits, ethical, um, personal development, and also um, high culture. And these are things that are still applicable today. And, you know, there's a lot of, I, I suppose I'm not, I'm not a U.S. expert, so I don't want to say too, too much about the U.S., but a lot of people say, well, look, are some of the terms that Nietzsche had come up with, resentment, ressentiment, how valid is that to help us understand some of the politics driving Trump today, right? Mm-hmm. You know, these are these are things that are still that are still um, valid and help us understand what's uh, hopefully what's going on by using some of Nietzsche's ideas. Yeah, resentment. Um, is there a degree? Is there a degree of like petty politics? There's a lot of nationalism. There's a lot of rejection of the other. Right. That's one of the elements of state morality. Is is um, master morality starts with you know. Affirm, uh, affirmation of oneself or slave morality starts with a rejection of the other. So anything else, like all these like xenophobic elements, that nativism, uh, rejection of international cooperation, blah, blah, blah. I say, well, that, you know, that's a slave, that's a form of slave morality in politics that, that we, we follow if we're interested in what Nietzsche is saying, that we could criticize as being a form of slave morality and then figure out what the, what the, what the opposing master morality that we might be able to get behind would be. And those, I think, those categories still help us, mm-hmm. and and then yes, trying to de- trying to defend culture in the large sense as as best we can. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's the kind of the the big project for for each of us is how do we not um, continue to give clicks and eyeballs and incentivize on our own will these things that we don't like, and I I. I I really try to tell people that you know, don't 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 you know react to the hot take or don't encourage reality TV don't you know don't don't do those things In, invest your time in other things it doesn't need to always be intellectual there can always be time for you know kind of taking it easy and you know kind of relaxing in certain ways and that's fine in a modern sense but don't give more uh incentives for things we shouldn't encourage and and you know i think that's uh, that's difficult for all of us and for some more than others but i think uh, i think you know we, we have to be the ones to kind of build culture in a lot of ways in the current state and so that's uh, just kind of important for all of us the uh, <clears throat> book is called nietzsche's great politics this is through uh, princeton it's out everywhere it's been out it's uh, fantastic everyone should uh, pick it up and uh I have to say, uh, this was a, a fantastic uh, conversation, uh, Hugo. I think uh, um, I'm very excited to read uh, what you're working on next, and um, I, I wish you all the best for that. And so a big, 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 big thanks for coming on here and, and talking about one of my favorites. Um, I, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks to you, Xavier, for the great shot and for, for the plug. Um, and yeah, with pleasure. Uh, when uh, hopefully when I finish the book, pleasure talking about elites and democracy and, and some love it in your future. That's great. All right, thanks. Uh-huh.